welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Well, hello from Oxford. It's great to be joining you, Emmaus Road. Thank you for having me in your series, um, Strange Lands. And today we're going to be thinking about the topic, Strange Culture, and particularly looking at the book of Daniel. And um, as we do that, I think it's important to ask the question, what does being in exile really mean? Um, In the book of Daniel, that's the context of Daniel and his friends. They were in exile. It can mean a a process of re-education and mind control that is fairly sophisticated. The Chinese communists had their struggle sessions. Other major powers used propaganda and positive reinforcement so that eventually people subjected to this will come to agree that white is black and up is down. A while ago, a friend of mine experienced something like this that was pretty concerning, actually, in a in a Christian context. She'd been challenging some behaviour that needed to be called out, and she was sort of subjected to an intense process in a group that felt a lot like heavy shepherding and perhaps even spiritual abuse. The pressure to submit to a particular narrative that she didn't feel was true was overwhelming. That's how empires work. What does it look like then to flourish as human beings, even when we're in exile, even when we're living in the land of another empire? What would it look like to flourish for Jesus's kingdom, to live without fear in the context of another kingdom, of another empire? These are questions that the Lord has laid on my heart for us to consider together this morning as we look at this book of Daniel together. But right now, um, a woman called Fatima has been taken by Boko Haram. You're gonna see her picture on the screen. She's enduring today unimaginable suffering because she's a Christian. She lives in Northern Nigeria and the torture and the efforts aimed at making her renounce her faith and embrace Islam are are just absolutely overwhelming. But as we look at the brokenness of our own culture around us, whether we're facing up to the impact of technology, algorithms and AI on our minds, our choices and our communities, the film The Social Dilemma helpfully unmasks some of that for us. Whether we're stirred up by the racial hatred and injustice that stalks our communities and systems. We may not be living in Joss where we might be abducted and um, taken away and tortured, but we are living in a strange land and in a strange time where we are subjected to um, the sort of uh, intentional shaping of our minds. So as Christians, we're living for the heavenly kingdom, but we're here on earth and we're here in our current digital communities. And whether that impacts our workplaces that might take us into government or law or universities or sales or service industries or hospitality or education or wherever we are, as Christians, we long to see the peace and mercy and justice and power of Jesus's kingdom but we're in a contested space. We're in a strange land. Are we aware of the dynamics? Are we equipped 
to resist so that we can live and flourish for God here and now. Well, in the book of Daniel, the people of Israel were in exile and they had to transition from simply just longing to go back to Jerusalem to learning to lead and to flourish in an empire called Babylon. And they needed to resist certain things in order to do that. So as we consider this question, what might it look like to flourish in a strange land? In the book of Daniel, we can read into the empire's tactical playbook and we can see how to resist and how to flourish. So let's look at the first tactic that is deployed against Daniel and his friends. What we see is the first tactic there is to persuade them that a godless ideology is superior, more sophisticated, and is going to make you more successful than trusting in the God of the Bible. Ancient sources show us that it was the policy of the extraordinarily successful King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian empire, not just to take taxes from conquered territories, but to select and then to transport the physically and intellectually elite young people of the conquered place and have them come to Babylon and to learn all the ways of Babylon and then to serve in the administration of the empire. So Daniel and his friends were chosen on the basis of their looks and their abilities. They were taken away from their parents, their society and their culture, and they weren't imprisoned. In fact, they were invited, transported into the sort of international elite of Babylon, a highly sophisticated global city. And at the time, it was the largest city in the world. It covered 2,500 acres. It had spectacularly impressive buildings, amazing fashion, libraries, temples, gardens, food. The, the historian Herodotus describes seeing Babylon and he said the beauty of the architecture surpassed the splendour of any city he had ever seen. It was a city of idols as well. The temples and the gates were built in honour of Nabu and Bel and Ishtar and the young elites that were brought there from all over the world studied the literature, the language and the culture of Babylon and these idols for three years. And then they were required to stand before the King Nebuchadnezzar for a sort of final personal exam. Imagine being 16 years old and you're from a totally parochial sort of non-place and you face that sort of onslaught in that kind of place. A three-year education into the philosophy of Babylon with all of this beauty and majesty around him would teach Daniel a version of materialism. And it's not unlike the dominant worldview here in the West and the worldview behind a lot of the big companies and technology that's shaping our world today. Materialism taught that matter and the physical realm are what is. And that is all that's really important. And there is no creator and no authority beyond us in this physical world. Now, the Babylonians believed that their gods, their idols themselves came forth from this matter. So Daniel was 16. His people, his culture and his God must have seemed totally and utterly defeated. And so the enemy tactic was clear. Make a materialistic worldview seem intellectually superior to this kind of 
your naive belief in God. But Daniel and his friends flourished and they were courageous. And we see here in chapter one that they make their stand over the food. It says in verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so the master um, agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. So what was the issue over the food? Well, it was a worldview issue. It was a question of how you interpret the universe. The Babylonians had an idolatrous mentality. They were materialists who believed that the universe was just a physical soup that kind of produced everything else, including the gods. And so Daniel and his friends protest this idea um, when they're part of the academy and the food and the wine for him are the point of protest. So he lived in the culture, he contributed massively to the culture, but he also protested it. And so he asked the steward to give them simpler food. And the steward um, admitted that he was scared. This wasn't a constitutional monarchy with laws the emperor um, obeyed. It was an absolute dictatorship. Nebuchadnezzar could do anything he wanted. In fact, the steward says, why should the king see you in a worse condition than your peers? But Daniel didn't want his own image to prop up the idolatrous interpretation of the universe. And so he says to the man, let's do this test. Let's see if it actually works. Materialists would have appreciated this. They, be they believed in um, the physical stuff of the universe. And so for Daniel, for 10 days, um, they only ate vegetables and drank water. They challenged the materialism of the culture. And on the basis of what the culture valued after 10 days, what the culture valued most, image and intelligence, God vindicated them. Physically, they looked better. And in intellectual terms, they had more wisdom um, than the others. And so Nebuchadnezzar talks to them personally in their final exam. And the text says that he found them after 10 days, 10 times better than everyone else. Daniel, the 16-year-old exile from nowhere, indoctrinated for three years by the most powerful empire on earth, to shift his mind, to, to move his mind to disbelieve in God and to embrace the materialism of the empire. Instead, he trusted God and his name and his legacy actually went on to outlive the entire Babylonian empire. So the empire tactic failed on him. But I want to ask you, is it working on you? Is it working on me? Do we hear the push of our culture? Do we hear the push of the algorithms behind the social media we are consuming? That only silly, suggestible, stupid, superstitious people believe in God, that there's a kind of superior way to live, that actually if only you could own um, a, a bit more stuff, if you could consume uh, a bit more uh, material things, then that would actually make you more happy and more successful. 
Tactic one is to undermine your confidence in the reality of God and to suggest to you, to move you towards a materialist view of life. But this text says that by trusting in God, these men, these boys were 10 times better. In other words, they weren't just able to survive in exile, they were able to flourish for God and his kingdom without fear in the land of this other kingdom, of this other ideology. Daniel had access to the living God. So it wasn't simply that he was 10 times more intelligent, brighter than others. It wasn't a question of relative brilliance, but it was a question of knowing the living God, the God who is actually real, hearing from God and trusting in him. So the enemy tactic, the empire tactic in these strange lands is to persuade us and our children, the rising generation, that a godless ideology is going to make you happier and more successful than following the God of the Bible. But Daniel shows us that it is worth resisting that narrative. Don't let the enemy steal your purpose, your influence, your calling by turning your eyes away from trusting in the truth of the God of the Bible. You see, the playbook of this empire is the same as the empire, the strange land we find ourselves in today. Well, the next tactic we find um, the empire going after is Daniel and his friends' sense of identity, their sense of who they are. You see, um, in, in um, chapter 1, verse 6, we read, Among those chosen were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach and to Azariah, Abednego. Daniel and his friends were given new identities. In Hebrew, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means the Lord helps. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning may the idol Bel protect his life. Hananiah to Shadrach, which means at the command of Aku, that was the moon god. Mishael uh, was changed to Meshach, who is what Aku, the, the idol Aku is. And Abednego is the servant of Nabi. This was an attempt to wipe out their identity and to conform them to the dominant culture, to wipe out their individuality, to wipe out their meaning was straight out of the Babylonian playbook. You see, the empire wants us nameless and confused about who we are and whose we are. And there isn't a single one of us that isn't damaged in some way by these tactics. It is God who can give us a significance that has eternal value. The Bible says that he knows your name, that if you've trusted in Jesus, your name is written on his hand, however small you may feel. Your name is not forgotten. God has a purpose for you. However imposing the empire you live in, you belong to a greater kingdom. Regimes and empires have always sought to rename people. In apartheid South Africa, 
um, school teachers would give Western names to children and to refuse to call them by their given names. And so it was that Rorichalala Mandela was nine years old when his primary school teacher decided that he should be known as Nelson. His cousin name meant the one who pulls the branch of the tree and is therefore a troublemaker, shaking the tree. And the teachers could not or would not learn his name. So the school system in that particular empire renamed him. Perhaps it's more subtle today in our context. The institution has decided you're a troublemaker and so that label sticks with you forever and you'll always be considered an outsider. You ask a lot of questions. So you're a doubter, you're not a true believer, you're not really one of us. Or the visual template of the empire is very particular and you don't conform to how it wants you to look and so you're a reject and you constantly live under a sinking feeling that you will never make the cut. Or you're a senior manager or a director who happens to be female, so therefore you're bossy, you're pushy, you're shrill, and you're not really very feminine. Or perhaps racial slurs, you're a person of colour, and therefore your male child is going to be viewed and marked as disruptive in class. Or you're single and celibate, and therefore you're oppressed, self-hating or unlovable. All your values are based on the number of likes your digital life inspires on Instagram. Your brain is being hardwired to want what the algorithm predicts you will want. And so you're drawn into a new identity, purchasing and admiring what the empire deems is best for you. You see, the empire wants us nameless, subjugated, branded, confused about who we are, seeking to buy things and make ourselves feel better. And there isn't a single one of us who isn't damaged in some way by these tactics. But God can give us a significance that has eternal value. He knows your name. It is written on his hand. He knows that you are you. He knows the you who makes you you. However small you may feel, he has a purpose for you. However imposing the empire you live in, you belong to a greater kingdom. Don't let the enemy steal your name, your identity, because God knows your name. He has a purpose, an adventure, a flourishing for you. One of my friends um, and colleagues is a guy called John Bechtel, and he had the vision and the opportunity to buy a multi-million pound site in Hong Kong. And he wanted to turn it into a camp for reaching young people to then evangelise China. And uh, this is a number of years ago, Billy Graham was in town and a wealthy businessman was traveling with Billy Graham and he was impressed by John's vision and by the site. And so he offered to go back to America to raise the money to buy this property. Three months later, when all the plans were laid, the money was needed um, and, and John had done the deal with the owners of this site, he received a letter saying that the man had not been successful in raising any of the funds. But there was a PS and he said, enclosed is a letter from a young girl. She'd heard about John's vision. She was 12 years old and her name was Melinda Holmes. And she wrote this small note saying, here is my ice cream money for two weeks. Use it to buy the camp. Inside, um, there was just one dollar, a one dollar bill. 
John felt really angry. And then he felt the Lord saying to him, I want you to take that letter and I want you to take that $1 and Melinda Holmes's letter and I want you to offer it and buy the camp with it. So John went to the chairman of the board of the people who already own this property and, um, and uh, he said, I'm, I'm ready to do the deal. And the man said, have you got the money? And he said, yes, I've got the money. And um, the man said, well, where is it? What bank is it in? And John said, I've got it here in cash. The man looked rather upset and John passed the envelope over the boardroom table and he said, please pass this letter and the money to your board. This is my offer. The man was really annoyed. He said, this is four acres of prime real estate in Hong Kong and it's got buildings on it. It's worth millions. But he promised to pass the letter on. A few days later, the call came. The site was theirs for the faith and one dollar of a 12-year-old called Melinda. Six years later, John was preaching in a church in America and he tells this story and he's dined out on this story for years. And this 18-year-old young woman comes up to him and she says, I'm Melinda Holmes, that one dollar was mine. And since 1971, over 1.7 million people have been through that camp. Over 160,000 accepted Christ in that camp. 130 churches have been planted from that site. A movement currently to resource the underground church in China is resourced from there. But not many people know Melinda Holmes's name. However small or insignificant we feel, God knows our name and he has beautiful plans for us to be a part of. You see, Daniel's name was changed, but his identity was not lost. Even in the course of his life, the Babylonian Empire was renamed by the Medes and the Persians. It collapsed, but Daniel's name remains. The empire that tries to rename us will also collapse. Don't let it happen. Don't let the empire name you or subjugate you. Hold on to your identity in Christ. So tactic two of the empire playbook was a fundamental challenge of identity. But Daniel's name lives on. He outlasts two empires. Kings come and go, but Daniel's name survives. And remember, it means God, the Lord, is the judge. Daniel trusted God and his identity is not stolen or shaken. Do you need the Holy Spirit to restore your name and identity as a child of the Heavenly Father, beloved, remembered, given purpose, knowing that you belong because you belong to him? Well, tactic three that we see in this book of Daniel is intimidation in the empire by the weight, the crushing weight of unfulfillable expectations. You see, in chapter two of Daniel's book, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream and he's surrounded by advisors and mediums and perhaps he suspects that they're not as powerful as they let on. And so he asks them, I want you to tell me the dream that I had and then I want you to interpret it. And if you can't do it, you're going to be killed. So the mediums try to sort of get the dream out of him so that they can then come up with an interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar is on to them. He won't share it. 
So all the elites of Babylon are in the firing line, including Daniel and his friends. It is perhaps one of the most crushingly unfulfillable challenges. Tell me what my own dream was and then interpret it. So what do they do? Well, in chapter 2, in verses 17 to 18, they realise that probably their end is near. Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. In other words, Daniel and his friends get together and pray. They cry out to God. And then the miracle happens in the night. The vision comes. And the result is extraordinary. It's worship and flourishing. It's the public proclamation of the truth of who God is to the world. As Nehemiah, uh, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar goes on to proclaim his newfound faith in the one true God in a proclamation that goes out to the entire empire. Thousands of people hear about the true God. The tactic of overwhelming us with unrealizable expectations may feel familiar to some of us. It is a tactic being successfully deployed against an entire generation in the West. Algorithms that work through social media and at every level of our data being analysed down to what we buy in the supermarket. AI designed to market and sell to us is now shaping and shifting our thinking with the power of likes, the dopamine hit that comes when the algorithms are working. But it's not making us happier. We're more anxious than ever. And we're filled with this fear of missing out. People call it FOMO. We become paralysed by the sense that life is passing us by and our life is not meeting our expectations. And at the same time as FOMO, we live in this massive mismatch between our expectations of happiness and the experience of many that rise from the um, violence and coercion of others as they want their expectations met, regardless of the cost to others. The enemy wants to crush us with unfulfillable expectations loaded onto us sometimes by culture, maybe by parents, sometimes even by the church. How does Daniel get free of the crushing weight of an unfulfillable expectation? Well, he gets together in community with friends very simply and they pray. Every work of God that I've ever experienced personally began exactly like that, getting together with friends and praying whether it was um, on the Great Wall of China where the dream to take Bibles to the Taliban began, or whether it was the opportunity to preach to the Grand Imam of Pakistan and then be invited to go to his mosque to share the gospel with his movement. That began through the prayer of local Christians there for his wife actually and Jesus then healed her of cancer whether it was seeing 30 gang members turn to Christ in Peckham in one night, delivered from another gang, chasing them with machetes. It all happened as a couple of us prayed in a 24-7 boiler room in an hour during a mission. 
or whether it was the prayer group that met in the West Wing of the White House and wanted an evangelistic event for their colleagues. And I just got to be the person who had the privilege of speaking there as God opened that amazing door in response to their faithful prayers in their workplace or whether it was the establishing of the OCCA where I'm standing right now. And that began as two couples in our 20s prayed together as we walked in Magdalen College Deer Park here in Oxford and God gave us a vision of an evangelistic centre that would touch the world. Or praying on sabbatical in America with my husband, Frog, and the dream coming of planting a minster church on a threshing floor on the outskirts of London, surrounded by fruit trees. That's a vision that came simultaneously to us as two people as we prayed. And now we find ourselves um, surrounded by 40 acres of fruit trees on an 11th century farm in Beaconsfield. The trials and difficulties are real, whether that's been personal death threats or miscarriage or burglary or exhaustion or trauma or discouragement. But the truth is that when we get together with maybe just one or two friends and we start to pray, the world is changed. This is how it happens. And it happens in the face of the tactic of intimidation by the crushing weight of unfulfillable expectations. And God is calling us to resist that, to get together and start simply with a few friends, asking God to give us those dreams and visions and breakthroughs that are so huge that they could only be fulfilled because of his power. So I want to finish there um, this morning and ask you to consider that those three tactics and whether they're working on us. The tactic of the empire to begin to believe in materialism, to have our minds shifted away from believing in the God of the Bible. Or the second tactic of of, of being overwhelmed by unfulfillable expectations. Is it working on us? Do we have that, that fear that is, is, is coming upon us because of those things? Or that tactic of having our names changed, a challenge to our identity of who we're called to be. I'm going to invite um, the Holy Spirit to come now and to minister to us as we do find ourselves in these strange lands, in a strange culture, in a context where um, there is this onslaught from an empire upon us, just like Daniel and his friends faced. And I'm going to pray that God will minister to us by the power of his Holy Spirit, that he will bring deliverance where we need that, that he will bring um, freedom and breakthrough where we need that, that he'll bring encouragement and courage where we need that. So why don't we just pray right now, wherever we are. We know that the Holy Spirit is is powerful to move. Of course, we'd love to be together in the room, laying hands on one another, singing and worshipping and praying in that kind of way. But the resurrected Lord was able to walk through walls and um, into rooms and the Holy Spirit can walk, move right now into our rooms, wherever we are and into our hearts and lives. So let's invite him to do that. Holy Spirit, will you come now? All over Emmaus Road Church, will you come? Will you move in our hearts right now? For those of us who are feeling overwhelmed, 
for those of us who just feel completely at sea in this strange time, in this strange land, buffeted and um, just onslaughted by the power of the culture, not knowing really who we are or what we're meant to be doing and losing our sense of purpose. Will you come now and fill us with your peace, with your love, with your strength? Will you remind us that you know our names, that our names, our purpose, our destiny is written on your hand? Will you restore again that sense of belonging to you and to this community and that sense of being part of your cause and the calling, the particular callings that you have on our lives? Lord, will you set us free from... Um, the onslaughts onto our minds as well. We pray that particularly for the rising generation. We bring your freedom and strength to resist where we need to. And will you encourage us now, Holy Spirit, encourage us to, um, to move again as, a, as a, a movement of prayer, whether it's just getting together with one or two and seeking your face and experiencing you changing the world through us as we just pray. In Jesus' name, amen.